If you're not already a subscriber to the London Review of Books, now is the perfect time to try. Sign up for just £5 a month and treat yourself to some of the world's best writing from Europe's leading magazine of culture and ideas. Subscribe now while you're listening to this podcast at lrb.me forward slash now. That's lrb.me forward slash now. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello everyone, um, I am Claire, the events manager at the London Review Bookshop, except I'm not at the shop tonight, obviously. Um, I wish we were all there together, but unfortunately we're doing it this way, but it's a good next best thing. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you all to help celebrate the launch of Speculative Communities, um, and I'm delighted to welcome the author, Aris Komporozos Athanasiou, who is Associate Professor of Sociology at University College London. Speculative Communities, Living with Uncertainty in a Financialised World is published by University of Chicago Press. First book is currently working on a new book project, tentatively titled Real Fake, an Intellectual History of Distortion and Capitalist Myth-Making. I am delighted to also welcome uh, the rest of our panel. Will Davis is Professor of Political Economy at Goldsmiths, University of London. He's author most recently of This Is Not Normal, The Collapse of Liberal Britain, and is a regular contributor to the London Review of Books. He is also the co-author of the forthcoming Unprecedented, How COVID-19 Revealed the Politics of Our Economy, that's out from MIT Press in March. Grace Blakely is an economic and political commentator, journalist and author. Uh, she's a staff writer for Tribune magazine and the author of Stolen, How to Save the World from Financialization and the Corona Crash, How the Pandemic Will Change Capitalism. Um, she's currently working on her next book, which will be out in the next year or so, and we're very much looking forward to that. James Bridle is a writer and artist working across technologies and disciplines. Their artworks have been exhibited in galleries worldwide and on the internet. Their writing can be found in Wired, The Atlantic, and The New Statesman, amongst others. They're the author of New Dark Age and Ways of Being, due to be published this coming April. I will, of course, be posting links to all of the books that are available in the chat. And the chat and the Q&A function is also the place where you can uh, post questions for our panel. And I will get them over to them. Um, I think that's about it, really. I'll be posting links to the books, do some questions. I don't need to tell you to knock, not knock over your wine glasses because we're not at the shop. Um, I'll hand over to Will. Thank you all very much. Great. Thanks very much, Claire, for that introduction. Um, and thanks everybody for joining us this evening, um, and particularly to Aris for inviting uh, me and uh, my co-panelists to come along to this event to celebrate the um, publication of this terrific book, um, which uh, I enjoyed tremendously. And there's a huge amount of uh, fascinating sociological and economic and cultural material that we have to get our teeth into this evening. Um, the way we thought we'd make this work, I'm not really gonna do much chairing. I'm here just simply to kind of um, kick proceedings off. Uh, is that I think we all want to understand more about the thesis of the book uh, and we're going to um, start with Aris um, outlining some of the core claims uh, in the book. Um, perhaps there'll be some discussion amongst the panellists uh, immediately following that. We'll see how it goes. I'm hoping that this is going to follow a fairly uh, organic um, uh, approach. Um, but um, there will be, um, we're going to then take uh, contributions in turn. Firstly, uh, from Grace on some of the issues to do with the uh, speculative uh, economic dimensions uh, of the thesis of the book. 
uh, for five minutes or so, uh, then maybe some responses um, from Aris, maybe some more discussion, we'll kind of see how it goes. Then um, James is going to make some uh, similar contributions um, uh, about uh, a different section of the book and following a similar format, uh, we'll take a few minutes to hear some of those uh, comments, get some responses. Uh, Aris um, will be able to respond to any particular questions um, that James has. Uh, and then thirdly, I will also uh, make a similar contribution uh, in relation to some of the um, claims about politics uh, and populism that come uh, towards the end of the book. So hopefully over the course of that, um, uh, the um, those of you who've joined us will get um, a pretty good sense of uh, the themes of the book. It's an expansive um, uh, analysis, uh, but hopefully we'll be able to cover uh, at least some of the, the central um, uh, claims and, uh, and concerns that Aris brings to this. Uh, so I really wanted to sort of start things off by um, uh, trying to get to some of what the uh, core concern of this uh, book is. Um, it seems to me that, Aris, uh, at, at the heart of this, there's a claim about um, something that changes uh, around about 2008, around about the time of the global financial crisis, where something is displaced uh, and something uh, perhaps not unprecedented, but something uh, novel in certain respects is born. Um, and one way of framing this is that you talk about the rise of a particular version of uh, individual agency, individual subjectivity that you uh, name following the concept of homo economicus, which is something that dates back uh, hundreds of years in the history of, of economics and, uh, and utilitarianism. You name uh, an alternative form of human agency and human subjectivity that you call homo speculans, uh, which you have uh, your own genealogy of, which places a particular uh, emphasis on the rise of futures markets in Chicago in, in the 19th century. But you also make a, a, a quite a distinctive claim about how this uh, uh, different um, form of, uh, of agency uh, comes into being um, in the wake of the global financial crisis, so relatively recently. Could you just tell us a bit more about that uh, and, and, and try to uh, isolate some of these uh, central uh, claims in the book? Yeah, thank you so much, Will. And before I uh, talk a little bit about this, this new subjectivity that you described, uh, just let me also thank you, thank all three of you for being here today. It's really a great pleasure to have you join this event. I don't think I could have started to launch the event with a better uh, group of people. And also people that hasn't been in conversation previously. So an interesting kind of way of speculative community that we, we ourselves are, are formulating right now. Um, so uh, as to the points that Will mentioned in the introduction, in terms of this transition, this moment uh, following the financial crisis of 2008, where uh, I locate in the book and in my argument as very critical moment in this, the emergence, uh, the more visible emergence of a new type of um, social, uh, economic and political subject, uh, which I call homo speculans. Um, this is, and, and the godfather of which is, is a good friend of mine, a classicist who helped me actually formulate, uh, come up with the term itself. The, the intention behind this new, the, behind, uh, coming up with this term and uh, this, uh, this label is starts, in fact, with a dissatisfaction, uh, somewhat almost uh, frustration, I would say, with the way in which the other label that we'll mention, Homo economicus, has been used uh, over the course of many, many years, for, for centuries, but also its persistence, uh, both within the discipline of economics, 
the way in which economists view uh, actors, rational uh, uh, people as rational agents maximizing utility with their choices, or uh, when they don't do that in the more sophisticated version of economics, they focus on bounded rationality and, uh, and other ways of uh, tracing the limits of rationality how can we account for the irrational? Um, the, but there is a persistence of a binary thinking that I think home economics could capture, uh, represents in the discipline of economics itself. But also, and I think more um, alarmingly, uh, there is a persistence on a narrow, rather narrow focus on home economics, its rationality and irrationality within uh, politics and, and uh, to a certain degree, uh, the political theory uh, often views, often uses that uh, framing of Homo economicus as to center critiques of the way in which financial capitalism, uh, its recent, uh, in its recent forms, um, uh, stra uh, sort of uh, limits uh, our political subjectivity precisely through uh, exercising an over-rationalizing force over uh, political subjects, uh, a fragmenting uh, uh, force, a uh, uh, force that uh, atomizes uh, society. So with homo speculans, what I try to do is uh, shift the conversation away from this unhelpful framing of homo economicus. And uh, th this is also, uh, and to move us to a conversation about uh, the more relational, the more imaginative ways in which human agents behave in economics, but in society and politics as well. Um, so uh, on, on a first level, my intention there is to uh, look at the world of finance, uh, look at the world of financialized capitalism and financialization, a, a work, by the way, that uh, Grace has done uh, brilliantly in her own work in giving us a sense of how the mechanics and the intricacies of finance and how it works, uh, how it uh, how it suffocates uh, and it, it, it penetrates into all realms of our everyday lives. Um, but so I wanted to use that figure of the homo speculans, that more imaginative, more relational figure, to um, to dive into some of the those intricacies of finance from a different perspective, uh, from the perspective of the imagination. That is the key, a key kind of argument I make in the book. That in order to understand those intricacies, complexities. Uh, and flaws of financialized capitalism, we can't simply consider it a force of reason or of irrationality, but we need to see the way in which finance itself imagines our world um, and the way in which in turn that imagination influences the way we ourselves as human beings, as a society, imagine uh, 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 our sense of community, how we seek uh, to develop bonds and, uh, and social formations uh, under that influence of the financial imagination. And so, because I don't want to talk too much about this, I'm sure you'll all have greatly, uh, you know, very important things to say on this, but it also, I just want to say very briefly how it also links with uh, the work, how this concept, uh, way of framing, uh, links to the work of also James and Will, and I think uh, uh, both of wh whose work has been very influential for me. So uh, part of the argument of the book is that these new subject, this new political, economic and social subject establishes its, itself through using, relying, by relying on technologies, on new digital technologies, 
the kind of commodified financialized technologies that we all have uh, um, access to in different to different extent. Um, uh, and it is through that they are through those technologies that a lot of those connections are being pursued. Uh, but also what's interesting with these technologies is that much like finance itself, they are a bit of a dark uh, a black box. Uh, we don't know much about how uh, we don't always understand the very confusing. We don't always understand the mechanics, their internal mechanics, the way in which they feed into our confusing and uncertain moment. And this is something that James has shown brilliantly in his in, in their own work. And and, um, and I claim in the book that uh, we need to uh, we, we need to look at those how these technologies become nodes for speculative communities around which our communities formulate, uh, take shape uh, and, and, and often uh, and often in ways that are not immediately understood or, or discernible. We don't always understand what uh, what a, what a speculative community might look like in that in that sense, uh, and, I, and I give many examples in the book of what kind of technologies uh, these can be, and from Instagram and TikTok to dating apps or astrology apps, uh, technologies in a nutshell that uh, relate us, mediate our relationship with the uncertain moment, with a radically uncertain moment, especially post two thousand and eight, and so while at the same time mirror that uncertainty, they don't offer us answers. Um, and that links to the political importance of all this analysis, which which is the third part of the book. And uh, I think there is some affinity here with with Will's thinking and, and his his own work in that uh, that landscape, that confusing, uncertain landscape where we can no longer tell uh, truth from lie and, and fact from fiction. Um, and, and this this environment that is exacerbated by the, the digital technologies and the cloud in which we find ourselves immersed in. Is precisely the environment in which uh, our political subjectivity is is exercised. It's the environment where in which Trump and Modi and Bolsonaro come about, and the Brexit vote comes about, and 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 this is a paradox that I locate in the book, in that uh, people seem to be large swathes of community of society seem attracted to um, to these to, to to the populist uh, ideas that these uh, these parties represent. So why is that? Well, even though they don't offer, they don't seem to offer answer to their uncertainty and the volatility that uh, they're exposed to devastating effects. So why do they do so? Uh, and, and part of the argument is that they do so in a speculative way. They do, they, they, they treat uncertainty, the uncertainty that they've been exposed to over years of neoliberal uh, exposure to neoliberal policies of austerity and so on. They place wagers on the uncertainty uh, of the moment by making those political choices. Um, and yeah, and finally, the, the book looks at uh, then is that all there is then? You know, is this, is, is this politics of uh, sowing uncertainty and confusion to reap power? Is that all there is? Um, and I am a little bit more optimistic than that. Uh, and, and I try to look at moments where other responses, other kind of political weaponizations of, of uncertainty can emerge and indeed do emerge um, in, in this kind of chaotic political moment. And I call those counter speculations. And, um, and, and these uh, are very much linked with uh, not only uh, the, the, uh, the aspect of speculation, which, which relates to uncertainty, which relates to taking, looking at uncertainty in the eye, to taking uh, upfront risks, but also to the other aspect of speculation, which is insurance. Uh, a speculator is also someone who takes on unwanted risk 
by by others by uh, prevents markets of overheating uh, as they say so there is an insurance element that uh, a security element that speculation can offer and so my claim is that nationalism can be one such symbolic insurance uh, but uh, the, the the task of of a progressive uh, counter speculation I, I claim in the book uh, is one of uh, coming up with more resilient progressive uh, forms of collective insurance of collective um, uh, of, of if, if, you, if you like of uh, collectivizations of uncertainty that can allow for uh, those upfront engagements with uncertainty to, to give more um, progressive and democratic outcomes great thank you very much Aris, for for that for for a um, overview of the of the overall thesis of the book. Um, I'm relying on all panelists to to wave or raise a hand if anyone wants to respond immediately because we don't have to stick uh, rigidly to any particular format in any of this. But there's quite a lot there for us to um, chew on uh, already, and I think you've touched on some of the issues that are going to come up in some of the um, um, responses that follow. Uh, but unless Grace or James immediately wants to, to pick up on that, and I don't think I have any particular comments I want to make at this stage, I'd, I'd now like to invite Grace to um, discuss some of the specifically financial claims in the book, because the book begins with a section uh, on speculation in the more conventional sense of finance and capitalism. So, uh, Grace, over to you. Thanks, Will, and uh, and thanks, Aris. Um, so I, I want to talk a little bit today about um, what my first thoughts were when I was initially um, given the title to this book and, um, and and read a little bit about this idea of homo speculant, because the first thing I thought was um, my mind, you know, went to something like GameStop or cryptocurrency, these kind of um, groups of, of people predominantly online who are engaging in a form of speculation and really forming um, quite kind of deep and, and solidaristic communities. And it brought me back to, um, and reading the book brought me back to this as well, to the, uh, an article I wrote around the time of the GameStop saga, calling it the revenge of the mini capitalists. And this links back to a well-known argument about um, the kind of role of, of neoliberalism in forming a particular kind of subjectivity linked to these processes of financialization, which is highly functional for these processes of financialization, whereby the individual as part of a household household comes to conceive of um, you know, many aspects of their lives and indeed their very self uh, through this kind of balance sheet mentality as, a, you know, a set of assets and liabilities, whether we're talking about, you know, the value of one's home relative to the value of one's outstanding debt or indeed the value of one's human capital relative to the outstanding debt you might have taken on um, to take out a mortgage. So the idea when this GameStop saga happened, which, by the way, for those who aren't familiar, was basically a community on Reddit decided that they were going to um, uh, undertake a short squeeze against a bunch of hedge funds that were short selling this this stock in a particular company. And for a while, it looked as though they might succeed. In the end, the institutions of financial capital, uh, many of which are aligned to the state, um, ended up uh, subverting that project. But it was a, a kind of very powerful movement while it lasted. Um, and it kind of, I, I feel like, drew on a lot of the, the anti-systemic and anti-capitalist, ironically, narratives that 
were and remain relatively popular today in those particular sections of the internet. And I kind of wrote this piece being like, well, actually, lots of people buying shares, and bear in mind, these are predominantly well-off people, particularly if we look at this in the context of the world economy, lots of people buying shares um, to screw over a hedge fund uh, is not necessarily the kind of, you know, radical um, utopian project that lots of people think it is. In many ways, it is the kind of apogee of the kind of uh, project uh, that, you know, Thatcher, Reagan and others were attempting to push, which was don't conceive of your interests, don't conceive of your potential to resist capitalism as part of a, an organized group of workers, conceive of it as, you know, a, um, a, a, a part owner of a, a company um, who is able to use their voice as a shareholder or perhaps, you know, as a, a voter who is able to use their voice as a consumer of public services or whatever. This kind of very individualistic and, as you were saying, it's quite atomized view of human agency. But um, reading your book, Aris, I was kind of pushed a little bit to think less about the way in which this kind of neoliberal subjectivity leads to this process of atomization and more about the ways in which it can foster a sense of community. And that is why my thoughts were initially drawn to, yes, GameStop, but also the massive and very interesting communities that I think have emerged, particularly over the last kind of five or 10 years in and around cryptocurrency. Now, I am not an advocate of this particular form of speculation, or, um, but I don't think that's really relevant to the discussion that we're having today. It's, it's interesting that these communities have formed and have begun to have quite a significant impact, particularly in kind of small corners of the crypto world, in the same way that GameStop was able to have quite a significant impact as well. Um, and it made me think again about a piece that came out in the FT um, about a year ago now, where basically a, a few writers, I think it was Gillian Tett and um, Robin Rigglesworth, were writing about how crypto is a cult. And my first thought when I read that was, well, yes, it's completely rational for crypto to behave as, like it's a cult because you know, there's no real objective um, measure of the value of these assets as you might have, say, with a, a share where you could you know, say it was the net present value of future dividends payments or profits or whatever. You know, when you have these entities that are basically just entirely based on expectations, then it makes sense for people within these communities to kind of hype these things up and talk down outsiders. Um, but actually reading your book, Harris, it made me think a little bit more about the kind of sociology of these communities and how they do represent, you know, engagement with these communities represents a particular kind of what you might say, what you might call insurance or at the very least kind of game playing in the context of uncertainty, in the context of uncertainty that has become much more pervasive uh, since the financial crisis. Um, and in the context of a financialized capitalism that seems much more chaotic, where the kind of balance sheet mentality that you might have had pre-financial crisis, which is, you know, over the course of my life, I will build up assets and then we'll draw down from those assets through to a more kind of wild west speculative post-crisis world where it really is kind of, you know, you have got to engage with these activities, engage with these behaviours in the best way that you can simply just to be able to survive, whether you're thinking about, you know, someone who's working in the gig economy or someone who's speculating on cryptocurrency. Um, and it, it is interesting looking into these because I've kind of had a little bit more experience of seeing what goes on in these worlds. And there really is a sense of deep solidarity and community amongst these people. And you can see it in certain groups um, where there's kind of a large number of, of people who hold a lot of coins or tokens talking with one another um, in often quite kind of. Oh, have I, oh, oh have dear. I, did I just get lost for a second there? Where are you still, Grace? Oh, there you are. Okay. Am I back now? I don't know what happened yeah. there. It just You're passed back. out. You're back. Yeah. Um, 
cool, good, good. Um, but yeah, talking to each other about what they should do and coordinating their moves around these these tokens to kind of stabilize the price or to you know think about what's going to happen to the rest of the community. And I think that was you know very interesting to observe. I'm obviously not saying again that I'm kind of endorsing all these these behaviors or converted to to crypto or any of these things, but it is interesting to to note that this isn't just an individuating process. It's also a process that is building genuine kind of ties and, and solidarities. The one thing that I really want to point out, and we talked a little bit about this on the podcast, Aris, is just quite how staggeringly unequal participation in these communities is and how hierarchical they are. Um, particularly if you look at, say, cryptocurrency, you know, you have a, a relatively small number of people who have a huge amount of power. This is even more the case when you come to NFTs, for example, where there's, I think it's 32 uh, wallets with 32 million it's something like there's a there's a 320 wallets or something with a, a million dollars worth of NFTs in them each. That is the wrong statistic, actually, but it's it's very unequal. I'll, I'll need to I need to look it up. Um, and it's you know the same, of course, when you look across many of these different markets. Very very unequal, very hierarchical. A small number of people who've basically been able to use pre-existing wealth, power, social capital to um, just yeah ensure themselves against risk, but also become very, very wealthy. And I think, Aris, this also applies, interestingly enough, in um, some of the other communities that you analyze in the book, in dating, for example, where you see on these dating apps, um, you know, you get reports or uh, uh, news articles about the most popular dating profiles, where there's like 10 people who get tons and tons of likes and everyone else is kind of excluded. And I think that inequality is a really interesting point because it feeds into um, the, the discussion at the end of the book around populism. Because the losers of these speculative games and the losers, the people who kind of get the mark of losers within these communities are the ones often that are driving this populist resurgence. And the thing that made me think about was Bannon, who obviously had these failed stock market bets, which is what turned him against um, uh, capitalism in general. I said, oh, I want to kind of screw around with the system and, um, yeah, basically kind of like screw the stock market, screw these guys. I want to drain the swamp and, and became this really uh, kind of, uh, you know, uh, insider, outsider, anti-systemic, but within the system figure. And also, you know, you see it in the world of dating, the kind of losers um, are the incels who are driving this real backlash against this, uh, what they see as a, a I cut out again there. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna, I was gonna stop now anyway, because um, I was, I was just about to wrap up. Um, but, yeah, I think I guess um, the thing that, that stood out to me most in that discussion was, yes, this kind of tension between individuation and community, which I think in, in the book you highlight really well as mediated by this idea of the speculative imagination, but also the real need to focus on these inequalities that exist within these communities and the political implications of those. Thanks, Grace. Um, Aris, do you want to come back on any of that? Uh, perhaps very briefly, because I, I'm, I'm keen on uh, hearing from, from James and yourself, Will, uh, just to say, I mean, I think these are really excellent points and a very, um, very close and deep reading of, of my argument. And I, I think your examples of the crypto communities are very important. And, and actually, when I was writing the book, the, of course, crypto communities, crypto trading was a big thing, but it hasn't, it hasn't exploded in the way that it has in the mainstream kind of coverage over the last year or a couple of years or so. Uh, but there, yes, I mean, I, I, just to add that when we use words like cult and, uh, you know, the, the way in which the NFT communities, crypto communities are sort of dismissed as, 
uh, almost, you know, conspiratorial and, and cult. I mean, there is something there that is uh, is lost in looking at the kind of myth-building myth uh, aspect of those communities, which is it deploys, it's very imaginative and, and uh, it, it, it answers, it speaks directly to the need for narrative, the need for community. And uh, so it does, it does a very uh, important job uh, that is, uh, that, that simply cannot be, cannot be answered by uh, the kind of, uh, you know, the, the, the question of um, interests or uh, immediate kind of profit and, and benefit from uh, that, that it's often sort of framed as, as a paradox um, as that I was talking about earlier. And, and that, yes, revenge is a part of it. I think it's an important aspect of it. Uh, but I think what I was trying to do in the book is emphasize that even when what is on first level most obvious is this kind of uh, power of, of, of this vengeful uh, politics, uh, that, that is expressed through some of those right-wing populist communities. I, I, there is still underlying this, underpinning this, is a crave for connection. And it's a connection that is actually fulfilled um, uh, in, in more subtle ways. I, I suppose that's that's the kind of work that I, I, I mean I was interested in in doing with the book. Uh, but as you said, Grace, I mean, the, the, the question of power is so central. And I don't, in fact, uh, I agree with you. I don't see hope in the rise of crypto communities and DAOs and all this decentralization narrative. I don't I don't believe in it. Uh, that, that, that that's where that's the space where the big radical progressive answers will come from that we that we so desperately need. Uh, in fact, uh, in the book, I locate i try to locate some of those i, I that, that those answers those hopeful answers from um spaces that are outside of the strictly speaking trading kind of communities um so in other words i try to look at and i'm sure we'll come to this now how uh the speculative imagination is exercised in other realms of our life and 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 it can actually be very generative politically If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. 
Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive set of offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Thanks, Aris. Um, I want to turn now to James uh, to offer some comments. Um, and uh, as outlined at the beginning, perhaps particularly on the second section of the book, which is on the, the question of, um, uh, uh, sorry, uh, spectacle. Um, so, uh, James, over to you. Thanks so much, Will. And thanks, Aris, again for inviting me. And thanks for, for everyone. Um, I was going to start by talking about this uh, image or place or something that's been going around my head ever since, um, since I read Aris's book. Um, one of the uh, one of the kind of central places that Aris locates the history of, of speculation in his book is in the Chicago Board of Trade, uh, which was established in the kind of late 19th century, and the, the place where the futures contract was invented, where derivatives were invented, as I understand it. I'm not a um, a financial historian, and I'm, my knowledge of finance is scant. But um, this is this is certainly the story Aris tells of, of the the birth of um, this 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 belief that one could trade on anything, that that uh, not only uh, the future was something that could be tradable, uh, that the uncertainty of the future could be traded upon. Uh, today we we don't only have trading on futures, we have trading on the potential volatility of those futures. You can trade on the uncertainty of uncertainty itself. Um, and yeah, in the book, Harris tells a, a little of the backstory of the Chicago Board of Trade, and I was thinking about the fact that. Um, a few years ago, I visited uh, Chicago and I went to the Chicago Art Institute. And in the basement of the Chicago Art Institute, they have uh, the, I'm not sure it's the original trading floor, but certainly the, the trading floor from the 1890s of the Chicago Stock Exchange. Uh, when that particular building was demolished, they, they rebuilt it in the basement of the Chicago uh, Institute of Art. Um, and it's this weird, like, ghost-haunted structure. Uh, this is the place where, like, this imagining of the speculation of the future was kind of born and given birth to, and it's empty and in the basement of an art museum, um, which, which is an image I've been trying to understand ever since I kind of encountered it. And I think Aris's book gave me some of the tools for understanding that, particularly because very successful in the book, he aligns it with the similar virtualization that's happened to pretty much everything else in the last century. And um, his other kind of great thread in the book is, of course, Benedict Anderson's book, Imagine Communities. Um, and so this, one of the central theses of Anderson's work was that um, these communities were that were imagined, they were imagined into being collectively by a shared, um, uh, encounter with and uh, experience of particularly of media, particularly of, of newspapers and subsequently of, of radio and subsequently television. But newspapers figure very large, very large in his account. And they were the tools by which disparate geographical collections of people with very little in common, recent immigrants, particularly in the case of the US, but of course, Fujera, were imagined themselves into a kind of shared community. Um, and that's a very powerful way of understanding how we've come out the other side of that completely fractured. Because of course, that, that shared community of media has completely disappeared. 
um, it has become entirely virtualized, and therefore it's become something not individualized, because as I think we're all aware, it's, it's, it's something that's deeply shared and community formed, but but varies completely across every other possible division between people. Um, something deeply strange has happened when we are all consuming radically different media, even though we may be stood next to each other on the bus or living next door to one another. Um, that that is. Immediately, you can see how these imagined communities fracture and, and kind of reform. Um, and so, understanding how that, that, for me, one of the things I'm always interested in is, is the way in which that, that confusion sown by this kind of radical fragmentation of everyone's everyday experiences, how people react to that. Um, and my framing for that tends to come around questions of agency. Um, and reading Alice's book, I really understood how uh, trading and speculation and these kind of financialized forms were a response to exactly the same thing in miniature that the kind of whole of society is going on. So, so Alice's says this is we all become like kind of speculators, but I kind of really feel like speculators just were encountering the same problems of uncertainty as the rest of us, just within the particular field that they worked in, which is that they had to operate under these uh, under these conditions of ever-increasing amounts of information, um, most of which is contradictory, for which it is completely impossible, completely impossible, meaningless, in fact, to try and construct any kind of actual <laughs> construction of the future. And so, so the, the uncertainty is, is, is kind of imposed on you. And so how do you construct a, a narrative out of that? Well, you have to extend that narrative into the future. You have to speculate. It's the only way to kind of take back some, I was going to use the phrase take back control and try to avoid it, but there it is, um, to, to establish one's own agency in the lack of any kind of coherent narrative that you can pitch yourself to. Um, I was particularly struck this week, uh, there was a poll done in Greece where I live of uh, anti-vaxxers um, in which uh, it turned out that 70% of anti-vaxxers, um, people who refuse the vaccination, um, for COVID, 70% um, of them said they wouldn't take the vaccination because someone else was telling them to do it. Only 40% actually had like scientific problems or, or, or raised medical objections to the vaccine. 70% were just straight up because I don't want to do what I'm told. And it struck me that this is a, I, I think this is universal. I don't think this is just, just, just in Greece. Uh, I think it's a nice telling of something that's happening all over. That, that this lack of agency leads people to choose, in this case, kind of conspiracy theory, but also essentially to choose uncertainty. Because the alternative to trust in medical science would be an increase in certainty, but it would have a corresponding loss in agency. And so this, this desire for, for narrative, whether it's the, the, the narrative of conspiracy theory, or whether it's narrative of populist nationalisms that has talks about in the book, or whether it's the um, the uncertainty of, of kind of financial speculation, it asserts a narrative. It is a story that one can tell about the world that kind of brings back one's place in it. Um, and the only, the only thing that, and this is a, a, a contradiction that I, that I haven't quite resolved yet, and maybe Aris can help with, is how to have that kind of agency without resorting either to conspiracy or to, um, to these kind of exploitative forms of financial speculation. The answer, of course, is you need actual power, <laughs> like actual agency, not the illusion of agency. 
um, which for me, and I suspect most of us are rooted in kind of community politics, society. But as I think has been clearly shown, they're not aligned with rationality in any way that makes sense according to traditional economic models. So the economic model doesn't fit, the political model doesn't really fit. Um, but um, but uh, but this, I also feel that this frame of rationality and irrationality is difficult because even the attempt at conspiracy theory and uh, speculation are also not really to do with irrationality. They're an attempt to behave meaningfully and with agency under conditions of overwhelming uncertainty. Um, so to I'm turn that into something productive. Um, I was particularly struck by Aris, like me, and others cites um, Tristana Zuboff, uh, her surveillance capitalism uh, in the book with regards to the, particularly the kind of, the, the uncertainty that's caused by, by social media and, and new technology. And I'm a, I'm a huge fan of Zuboff's work um, in the extent to which it analyzes both the way in which technology companies operate um, and the ways in which uh, um, they have uh, found new fields from which to profit. Uh, where we differ remarkably is that I don't think that's some kind of aberration of capitalism. It just seems like more capitalism to me. Um, that there's definitely, uh, you know, just as the speculators followed the, the uncertainty of everyone, so Silicon Valley is just following capitalism and its, its ability to discover new fields worth mining to the next logical extent. Um, Grace has already described some of the ways in which these, um, these, these speculative communities emerge around kind of financial speculation. But I guess what I'm really interested in is what are the examples of speculative communities that, that break free of the financialized model? Because even the ones that have already been, there's obvious ones like GameStop and crypto and NFTs, which are based in financialization. There's then the, the ones like dating apps and astrology, but as Grace has said, already feel like they're full of winners and losers and so on and so forth. So is there a way, Aris, in which speculation breaks from that? What are the communities that might be possible through, through speculation that aren't so rigorously tied to finance and all this destruction? I'm muted, I'm muted. Um, thanks, James. Um, Aris, do you want to respond to any of that? Yeah. Maybe, maybe relatively then... briefly. I'm just keeping a vague eye on the time, which is uh, falls to me to be uh, the... Uh, um, yeah. No, no, absolutely. And uh, again, I think uh, thank you, James, for this really rich uh, thoughts on on the book. And um, in many ways, you know, you describe very beautifully, um, and I think even I'd say a little bit more clearly some of the points that I I tried to make in the book itself um, about this kind of this moment and um, and what I what I tried to do with describing the the Kind of historical background of this moment of confusion and uncertainty and our responses to it um so yeah just very briefly i guess i mean I'm, i might be very brief because i think your question does link to the final kind of section of the book and uh, to which will will speak which is the political implications of this kind of homo speculans and speculative com communities uh, so the only thing i would say other than that uh, i do share your very much your um skepticism about uh, the side of Zuboff's argument that surveillance, surveillance capitalism, you know, isn't isn't just a, a problem to be fixed in capitalism. It's just how, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's endemic. 
Um, but there is, uh, I suppose, what, what, I, what I wanted to say is that uh, the answers, I don't believe, I, I'm not offering answers in the book in the sense of, you know, pointing to where, you know, which kind of counter speculation will be more effective uh, in, in overturning capitalism. Uh, but I do nonetheless, and I think I, I agree there with, with the point that you make in, in your book, uh, The New Dark Age, James, that um, we cannot consider of points of resistance that are entirely outside of those technologies that we inhabit, this, this kind of complexified, technologized reality that we experience in our everyday life through the apps and through all these uh, instruments. I don't, I don't think that one can uh, begin the task of critique and resistance and, and action entirely removed from, from those worlds. So I, I, um, uh, part of what I tried to do in the book was to try and uh, offer maybe a language for describing modes of connection and action that are, are already there um, and, 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 and then and point our, our attention towards them. Um, but yes, but perhaps I, I'll, I'll stop here and I'll let Will um, yeah. share his thoughts. Yeah, thank you. Um, and, and yes, I was going to um, offer some comments on the, on the final section of the book, which is where it becomes more explicitly political. And James's uh, comment, um, this, I was actually going to raise some of the same kind of conclusions, actually, that James just did about uh, the question of um, kind of alternative forms of politics, genuinely alternative, rather than forms of politics that get kind of subsumed by the same kind of financial logic. Uh, I also, there's a couple of questions I'm, from the chat that I might actually just bring in some of my comments as well, because I think they speak quite nicely to this and that might help us sort of segue into the, to the chat. I mean, one of the things that the book raises is that there was a kind of argument that went on amongst scholars of neoliberalism and political economists since the financial crisis as to whether um, populism and nationalism uh, represented a kind of um, pushback against neoliberalism and a kind of re-embedding or a demand for a re-embedding of the economy uh, in society. So you have these sort of Polanian scholars, you refer to Polanyi's work in the book, someone like Wolfgang Streich, for someone, people who are familiar with his, his work, would argue that, you know, a return to the nation, you know, in, a, in hopefully a sort of non-toxic sense, if such things possible, might actually be a kind of way of, of, of pushing back against the logic of, of, of finance and of global capital, and in particular, the European Commission for Streich and so on. Um, and then more recently, there's been a, a set of scholars that have sort of argued, actually, on the contrary, that if you look closely at some of these nationalist and populist projects, they actually align themselves to finance in certain ways and that they, um, uh, that in some sense, the, the, the pursuit of, of the nation and of, and, and of sort of national solidarity and so on, in some ways is a kind of a, a works in tandem with uh, certain aspects of neoliberalism. And Aris, you're clearly in, in the latter camp, uh, along with other scholars who you mentioned, like Michel Fayer, uh, and others uh, in arguing that populism, which on the face of it, if you listen to Steve Bannon and, and people, it sounds like it's, oh, it's all about sort of fraternity and tradition and, and, and community and so on. But actually, if you examine it more closely and you look at its technologies and its its rationalities of, of, of rhetoric and of, and, of, and of network building and so on, it's actually also another type of speculative project. Uh, and that actually um, it is a different way of projecting uh, an imagined future in ways that is not clearly obviously the same as the way in which financial markets work, but there is a kind of a common logic between the two. And then in the final chapter of the, of the book, um, 
you, um, you, you talk about sort of disruptive um, kind of alternative heterodox speculations, forms of kind of almost like a, a, a sort of forms of uh, motivated by a logic of kind of meme warfare or, or the hacking of political institutions uh, of these sort of um, kind of bottom up forms of speculative community. You talk about things like the Gilets Jaunes in France and these sorts of um, political uh, projects. Um, but I guess that this this leads, and, and I, you know, I'm very very persuaded by lots of that. I'm persuaded by 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 these analyses that 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 point to some of the kind of the points of commonality between neoliberalism and populism. And and I think I think that you know many initial responses to Brexit, which you also discuss, were rather duped by aspects of its sort of you know communitarian sort of appeal and that clearly there are aspects of it that that, that were a sort of more radicalization of, of certain uh, kind of financial and disruptive logic but and this is where I think you know I, I shared James's final question one of the things that I was left with at the end of this is how do we think of politics as anything other than speculation by, by the time we got to the end of the book um, and I wanted to sort of you know one of the there was a question in the in the chat from Kate Hines saying, do you think that we all speculate in the face of uncertainty or do most people seek security? So is the populist turn a return to a golden past? Well, I mean, if I, I don't want to speak for you, Aris, but I think it's it's clear that in the, certainly in the logic of the chapter on populism, that, that you see it not as a, as a kind of straightforwardly um, sort of sincere return to, to security and that actually it is a, in some ways a different logic of insecurity, maybe a, a sort of solidaristic logic of insecurity, if that's not a, a paradox. The other question in the chat, and, and you know you can reply to them because they're just as sort of valid questions as the ones that I'm raising, by Rob McMillan, where he says, how do Aris and colleagues, so I guess that, that, that's us as well, respond to the possible critique that they present an over-financialized or over-speculative concept of agency? Most people most of the time might not pursue such subjectivity, hence political projects interventions are mistaken as actual social and economic trends. And I think that what this, one of the things that, that the book raised for me as well, despite the fact that I'm actually sympathetic to your, you know, this, 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 this idea that, that, that the logic of speculation goes in all sorts of different directions and, and, and underpins all sorts of political projects. But if you were to take some of the, I guess you could say the biggest, um, crisis of the 21st century, which is climate change, it does not obey a logic of uncertainty or speculation. It obeys a logic of crushing certainty and of crushing predictability. Uh, and that, I mean, if anything, it's things might be moving faster than some models predict, but that in many ways, the predictability of the future and the predictability of where the costs are going to fall, on which communities they're going to fall and what particular territories they're going to fall, and the predictability of who escapes and the predictability in relation to, say, COVID or all sorts of other crises at the moment of who benefits and who loses is actually uh, really pretty straightforward a lot of the time. That In many ways, lots of people do not feel themselves to be living lives of, of uncertainty or of, of, of engaged in speculative projects. Actually, the people who died from COVID, you probably could have, you know, they, it was not surprising what kinds of jobs they did, um, what particular kinds of communities uh, they came from um, and this sort of thing. So there is a, in some ways a kind of, I mean, I'm not to say that we should take populism at face value and that populism is a sort of, you know, in the way that say Strake might be very forgiving of, of, of aspects of economic nationalism, that it is a sort of, you know, a straightforward demand to, to restore security and restore certainty. But putting that to one side, there is clearly an aspect to contemporary political economy and contemporary politics, of which I would say something like climate is the the, the, the sort of 
most epic example, that costs and benefits get distributed in ways that can be predicted uh, and does not obey perhaps some of this logic. So, and perhaps poses political questions that cannot simply be met with these kind of speculative answers. So what, and this is in some ways back to James's question, what, what does non-speculative politics look like today uh, if we're not simply to allow this concept of kind of speculation and of speculative communities and homo speculants to become a kind of all engulfing as if we are all engaged in these these sorts of projects? Because I think that was also, a you know, that was a limit of some neoliberalism theory, which was that, oh, we're all constantly acting as entrepreneurs the entire time. And of course, most people are not acting as entrepreneurs the whole time and their lives obey a sort of crushing predictability much of the time. And maybe this also links back a little bit to some of what Grace was saying about the inequality within some of these communities, which mean that the winners and the losers are not quite as sort of uncertain as, as might sometimes be predicted. So I'm not sure how much, if that all ended up with a particular uh, sort of um, direct question, but I, I, I think that there is a sort of a theme lurking in some of these comments, including from, from Rob McMillan and, and, and Kate Hines' questions in, in the chat, um, which is the sort of limits of a speculative logic and what lies outside of it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's this, these are, uh, I think, some really excellent points. And uh, th these are the questions that I think are the important ones to ask, really, on, on reading the book. Um, they are in inevitable ones to ask, in fact. Um, what I would say to it, I mean, the, the, the first part is something that um, I always think about and I always, I think it's something that triggers people's curiosity and, and kind of skepticism, uh, the, the way in which I emphasize openness and, uh, and the, the embrace of uncertainty, the endorsement of uncertainty, uh, and how that is seems quite jarring to people uh, when we live in a world where, you know, nationalism and, and kind of the right wing kind of culture wars are, are geared towards a, a, a narrative that's is seemingly a narrative of security. Uh, and, and so, you know, why, why speculation in that, in that sense? You know, why is it a more accurate kind of framing of, of the moment? And I, I suppose for me, I mean, there is something about this, coexistence of openness and uh, closure uh, that is really central to uh, how capitalism works and how uh, uh, how financial speculation uh, sort of unfolds. And these two dimensions of speculation and insurance that do go hand, hand in hand. And I guess my, my argument in the book is that we just simply cannot afford to focus on one over the other, we we do need both, and 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 linked to that is the argument that uh, forms of stability and security and the collectivization of our uncertain condition. I mean, traditional forms of that we have through literally social security and and the welfare state and and the NHS and and the the access to the co collective resources, material resources that allow us to to live. Um, decent lives. Um, but uh, often this kind of security does come with uh, a, a certain closure in, in the way we consider the opportunities that openness of the future can, can, can bring. And uh, I guess part of what I saw as uh, what I was trying to do in the book is um, emphasize the, this, that in the current moment when everything seems to have unraveled in the way that it has unraveled, um, 
the, the kind of progressive engagement with, with this moment cannot afford to lose sight of, of the openness. When, when it did so, my reading of the events of Brexit and, and, the, and the Trump election and so on was that uh, this is precisely where uh, the, the, the left that was articulated there as a response was, uh, was weak um, in that it didn't respond to the need for a future orientation. And, and to link to, to the climate question, I mean, it's a huge question. And, but I think what interests me here is that you're right. I mean, predictive models do uh, give us a very, very undeniably, uh, you know, catastrophic uh, and accurately catastrophic image of what the future holds uh, in terms of the climate disaster. Um, and so what does speculation have to do with this? I suppose, you know, it's, it, uh, and, but I do think that what speculation has to do with it is, is that a lot of, uh, again, the responses that we get, social collective responses to this climate crisis is, um, are there's a lack of consensus, right? On 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 there's a lack. There seems to be a lack of grassroots consensus on on our on that uh, reality, on that reality, that predicted reality, that accurate predicted reality. And and why is that? At the same time, there is there are other narratives that circulate. And I guess the claim that I make in the book is that it's not these kind of other narratives, the 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 speculative narratives of, of the populists and of conspiracy theorists and, and NFTs and, and that sort of thing, they're not really, uh, what they have in common is that they don't necessarily, unlike what we often think, they don't offer certainty. They're not simple narratives. They're also quite complex narratives. They, they are underpinned by quite complex kind of elements of myths and, 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 you know, all this QAnon stuff is not exactly the simplest narrative that one can come up with. I mean, there, there are nuances of that, that, uh, of course, that are very destructive, but, um, they are, I think they do, they do retain a speculative element. Uh, and it is, I think, a response that, um, uh, that people, people, you know, we, we do see in society a lot. Now, of course, you know, it's not, uh, how do we come out of this? I mean, this is the, the, the perennial question here um, that I'm not, I haven't directly answered. But uh, but I suppose the final thing I want to say is that if there is anything, you know, there's nothing sort of programmatic about the work. You know, I'm not offering a blueprint, but but I do I do if if we were to, if there was to be a translation, a kind of a kind of uh, insight for uh, practicable uh, political implications. Um, for, for the left and uh, broadly speaking, that would be that uh, weaponizing a speculative logic or a speculative imagination does point us to um, uh, to spaces and to alliances that might not look on first level uh, uh, to make sense. To, to, they don't look as as though they are the traditional way of the, of, of of occupying a political position across. And you know, I'm thinking, you know, we see the antique. Uh, lockdown demonstrations, the very di disparate elements that consist of this very weird mix of new age, new age yoga mentality and, and, and populists and, and climate deniers and all of that kind of coming together. Uh, pro, pro neoliberal rationalists are part of that too. You know, it is a weird mix. Uh, and so part of what I'm saying here is that uh, the, there is no, you know, the response needs to take account of that. Uh, the, the speculative elements that underpins these uh, strange alliances. So our our alliances, the progressive alliances, need to retain some of that element, perhaps, and cultivate it. Um, 
so yes uh, this is not a this is not uh, maybe a full answer but uh, maybe a, a hint of of uh, sort of where i'm what i'm thinking around this thanks harris um no that's that's very helpful um and can I just remind um, the audience members that you are welcome to add your questions to the um, event chat and uh, we have a few more minutes left, so there's still time to take uh, more. Um, there's a, a question just come in saying, could Aris and all the others say more about the idea of counter speculation? Does this suggest that progressive, radical, subversive, speculative communities too? Well, I, I think um, I think you kind of just answered that in the last your last comment that I think you certainly do uh, believe that uh, radical, progressive, subversive, speculative communities are possible. And indeed, the, 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 the final chapter of the book before the conclusion is, 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 is about precisely that. Uh, is there anything more you want to say about that, Aris, in terms of like how you might um, define counter speculation or how we might distinguish it from other forms of speculative communities in terms of that, that particular question? Yeah, no, I think you're right. I, I think, you know, I spoke to it just now, but maybe only thing to add here is that the main, uh, uh, what I call speculative politics is uh, uh, in the book, I describe as a dominant form of a kind of politics whereby all actors seek to not control or limit volatility, but kind of cultivate it further for the, for the benefit. Uh, and, and so then a counter speculation does also does not aim emerges from the same space. In other words, it doesn't aim to kind of offer a solution of stability uh, uh, or stability alone, but it it aims to uh, weaponize that volatility with a different aim. And the aim there is to challenge the the kind of uh, holders of power, of institutional power, of of uh, you know the the of market power and so on. And and uh, and the other element is that I see counter speculations as relying on more uh, equitable and inclusive forms of kind of social insurance and, and security that allows them to, 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 to take on those wages. So, so this is uh, this is the kind of the conceptual distinction that I make. Uh, but, but just maybe very, very quickly in terms of because in, in the final chapter, I do bring examples of different forms of counter speculations and they are quite different. And just to mention, because for those that haven't won't have read it yet, uh, you already spoke about a couple of them, Will, but, but I, I talk about uh, uh, things like uh, the digital alliance of subculture groups like fandom communities of TikTok, the, the Korean pop music uh, kind of fans and how uh, in their uh, internal communications and through Instagram and TikTok allied with the Black Lives Matter uh, uh, during the wave of protests in the last couple of years. And they did things like sabotage political events of the alt-right and, and Trump. Uh, and they did that, you know, they did create a kind of counter speculative community there. They did have an impact, a material impact on, um, on, uh, on, on the, on the sort of enemy, if you like. Uh, but, but I also at the same time, so that's one form, but I also, I'm not, I'm not suggesting in the book that the only space to look at for counter speculations is the virtual kind of digital, uh, even though that's the, you know, the more perhaps, uh, uh it's particularly spectacular there, but I talk about things like that we wouldn't, our mind wouldn't go to perhaps like the uh, events that led to the referendum uh, vote in, in Greece in 2015 around the, the rejection of the austerity terms that were proposed uh, under the, following the debt crisis. So I'm interested in how uh, uh, voting behavior, uh, uh, a sort of rational kind of voting uh, seemed to be taking place in a very different arena to um, uh, to, to clearly 
a distinction between what's in favor of one's interest and what isn't. Uh, the terms of there of the debate were very uh, occluded about what no or yes would mean in practice. And the only certainty there was that a no vote seemed to mean uh, chaos, an exit from the Eurozone, but it was nonetheless, there was an element of grassroots support for that. And, and that, unlike Brexit, had much more progressive connotations on the grassroots. So it's an interesting just juxtaposition of the Brexit kind of populist and, and, and endorsement of uncertainty and the, the Greek kind of vote that happened uh, just around the same time as well. Uh, but, but these are very different forms of where counter-speculative imagination can, can manifest itself. So they don't, they don't look the same, but I think they, they point us to, to uh, possibilities that are interesting, um, uh, that are very interesting. Thanks, Aris. Um, just, just very briefly, because I think the point about climate was really interesting, um, because the, the point about, about climate is that is a very predictable and obvious risk, but it is still characterized by very, very pervasive uncertainty. And I think that's a really important distinction because there is this whole idea of the risk society. You know, we are our lives are characterized by these pervasive and sometimes all consuming like climate change risks, And we know they're coming. What we don't know is necessarily who is going to be affected by them and how it's like the difference between knowing that if you lend to an industry in a particular sector one percent of those businesses will fail and knowing whether or not the business to which you lend will fail and of course the difference between risk and uncertainty as aside from the kind of possibilities of measurement is that that the whole point about uncertainty why it's so imbricated with the logic of finance is that people can always profit from that uncertainty you can always profit from not knowing who is going to be the one that ends up paying for things like climate breakdown, which is why it's been this profitable avenue for exploitation by the far right. They can kind of cultivate this idea that actually, yes, this thing is happening, but we don't know who's, who it's going to affect. So give me your trust and I will protect you or we can protect one another. Um, and I think there's, uh, you know, the, I suppose with, within that context of uncertainty, the thing that, that still exists in a way that it doesn't with risk is this question around agency. I think, James, what you were saying about um, this lack of control leading people to and lack of agency leading people um, to kind of have these different reactions to uncertainty, that's potentially an interesting path for the left is thinking, right, how do we respond to this sense of a lack of agency, this sense of uncertainty in a way that isn't just give me your trust, I will protect you, but which is actually how do we empower these communities and, and give people the chance to build their own collective responses to this pervasive sense of uncertainty. Thanks, Grace. That's really helpful. Um, James is putting his hand up. <laughs> We're now getting a discussion just as just as we've gone past the hour. But yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Well, I just I wanted to very briefly. First of all, I wanted to slightly push back against the thing that came up a bit earlier about um, whether most people live in uncertainty or, or I think Will was saying it about um, you know most people's lives actually take form that might be expected <clears throat> which which is not untrue but i don't think it takes into account the the media imaginary or the social imaginary which benedict anson outlined and that Harris kind of continues um, i was thinking about this kind of century-long emergence of speculation like which is originally essentially the cult act it moves into the mainstream as this kind of financial derivative trading and luckily as Harris shows in the book really kind of mainstreams fully as this kind of algorithmic uncertainty which really does affect everyone and whether that's in terms of the app driven kind of gig economy or your kind of tailored news feed or the kind of politics of muddying the water that's kind of 
equalized across the world really um it's that the the stability of one's actual reality like the the, the actuarial outcomes of one's life when kind of presented a graph so very little reaction very little relation to one's experience about like one's expectations for it and therefore one's experience of uncertainty so i, I do think this these questions, whether people consciously realize it or not, really do kind of go very deep. Um, that's why I think there's, there's kind of huge value to this. I also just want to briefly add that one thing that we haven't discussed, even though this is a thing about imagination, is, um, is histories of speculative fiction and histories of speculative design and the fact that there are actually um, vast speculative imaginaries uh, that exist outside, uh, outside the realm of financialization um, that are intentionally created not merely to participate in speculation for its own sake, but to design, delineate, like write out, describe other possible worlds with the intention of bringing them into being, which is perhaps something that's a little, you know, almost financialized in the sense of like, there's a profit and there's winners and losers. Who gets to define that world? But like, if there is a game to be played on the left elsewhere, of like who gets to write that world, then there are there are some tools that work and that have worked and continue to work uh, in fiction and the arts that I think should be part of of any kind of discussion of speculative imagining. Thank you, um, uh, Aris. You want to very quickly just do you have any more comments, or otherwise we'll wrap things up. No, I think you know this is probably we're already over time, aren't we? And and these have been such really brilliant um, comments and and thoughts, and I'm, I'm really thankful for this deep engagement that all three of you had with the book. And um, yeah, I mean, I think um, the only thing I would add is that um, it's um, the, the, the question of the question of speculative communities and, and its relevance. Um, I think uh, to, to the moment, I would say that um, I my hope is that um, there is, uh, there will be some more engagement with these kind of questions, and maybe, you know, asking, uh, asking some of these questions differently, uh, and using using sort of uh, prompting folks to use some of this vocabulary. Uh, might I'm hoping that it might open up some of the debates around the pressure to produce kind of convincing alternatives as kind of the progressive, the left, how we want to call it. Um, that sometimes seems to be weighing too heavy on our shoulders, and I, and I think part of what I tried to do in the book is to yeah to work with openings that might look confusing or ambivalent, but they're nonetheless very important for for the conversation. And so yeah, the, 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 I think that's I will probably leave it here. And thank you so much again, all three of you. And I know for some of you from other time zones, which is quite late at the moment. So. Yeah, doubly thanks for your for your involvement and your engagement. Great, thanks very much, Aris, um, and uh, thanks everybody for joining us this evening. Uh, it's a terrific book. Um, I recommend everybody buys a copy. I think there's going to be a uh, a, a link uh, in the chat and also to uh, other work by uh, us uh, panelists. <laughs> thanks very much uh, to the uh, LRB and to Claire LRB Bookshop and to Claire um, for uh, organising the event this evening. And thanks everybody for your questions and for joining us. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.